0: Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. Uh, we are going to continue uh, in Matthew 5 today, and we're going to focus on one thing today, and that's just going to be on the issue of divorce. Um it, it's a, it's a complicated issue in so many ways, but Jesus breaks it down and makes it simple. This is not the only time in the Gospel of Matthew that he speaks about divorce, and so I'm going to go ahead and touch on what he says later as well. So in, in uh, Matthew 5:31, it was also said, and it was also said goes back to what he's par- spoken about right before that with, with to do with anger and well, with murder and adultery you have heard that it was said to those of old? So here, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So there's a lot going on in those couple of verses there. Um, the the, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce was something that was uh, instituted in in the law of Moses. Um, So we're talking about in the Torah. So we go back all the way to Exodus where this happens. And so whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Well, there's there's a couple of things that are going on, at least at the time of Jesus. This has become a little more complicated even, um, because at at the time of Jesus, it's similar to today, right? Because they they didn't have civil judiciary authority. They were under Roman rule. So in the same way today, in the United States, for instance, and everywhere on earth except for the land of Israel, that's true. So they have ceremonial slash religious authority, but they don't have judicial slash civil authority. So those are two different processes, um, and, and the way that, that Judaism has understood marriage for a very long time is, is that, that it, it's odd to me that it's this way. So I'll just be honest with you because I, I see it the other way around. I, I see that those two things can be separated from one another. There need not be civil recognition of the marriage. In my mind, that has more to do with uh, financial implications and legal implications than it does actually the, the, the marriage between the two. God's the one who makes the marriage, but they see this in a different way. They see it as you do that part first, the civil part first, and then you do the religious part. And so that when there's a divorce happens, you go get the civil divorce first, and then you do this process of giving a certificate of divorce, so it, it, it's it's not as simple as it sounds in, in here, where when whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, in, in all practical, for all practical um, consideration, it was the same in Judaism. But but actually, what Moses gave in this, and, and you know he's speaking for God, what what he did was he he formalized a process, uh, because the problem was this, that, that a man could say that I divorced my wife, but, but it didn't have force. That, that was not a divorce. It was more abandonment. And the problem that it created, or the problems that it created, are, are manifold in so many ways. It, because one of the, the biggest issue that it creates is, now you've got a woman who, who is still married, but her husband ha- is considering it to be divorce, and so she's unable, because of that, to remarry. She's not able to, to take on a new husband. And she is highly unlikely, unless she came from a particularly wealthy family, to have, um, have independent means by which she can support herself. There's also an understanding that needs to be had of marriage, even at the same time. In Jewish marriage, there's a contract. It's called a ketubah. There's a contract there that includes a bride price but it also includes o- obligations of the husband for the wife so it, it's a it's an actual uh, agreement that that has financial considerations that go along with it and so it, if he now will not give her the certificate of divorce which is to, its practiced today actually it's called a get. The get is the Hebrew word. It's it's not some trans weird translation thing. It's, it's get is what it is. And so if he refuses to give her the get, then she can't marry again. And she is called, actually in, in Judaism, she's called an aguna. And, and an aguna means chained wife. That means she's linked to him but doesn't have any recourse legally to force him to do this. And so Moses required that to happen he required that get to be issued if you want to divorce her then you've got to formally do that and that requires something more than just handing her that although at that time it didn't there weren't jewish courts once jewish courts were established at the time of jesus for instance that there there would have been you you issue the get and this is still the way it's done today you issue the get to your wife and it's only a one-way street a wife can't divorce her husband in Judaism. It has to go one way because that's exactly the way it says it. Is it a man who wants to divorce his wife must issue this certificate of divorce? So what happens is is that he issues the certificate of divorce, and the, the Jewish court, which is made up of the rabbi and a couple of other people who are there as witnesses, then then certify that process. So it, it's it's got to be in writing— and what's interesting is because th- this is the way Judaism can sometimes operate. It's it's not only issued in has to be issued in written form by a scribe or the husband, possibly, but it, it it contains certain sorts of information. But even today, it has to be issued in Aramaic because that would have been the language that would have been used at the time of the rabbinic decisions on this. So it's got to be written in Aramaic, which at this point mostly... Require somebody else to do it, so it's got to be issued. And then they, there's no it, the parties don't have to be there together. Um, it doesn't have to make an uncomfortable situation even worse. But but it's all decided by the rabbis. And once that is done, as far as Judaism is concerned, there's a real divorce. And you need to understand this: there's a prohibition against re- remarrying that person. There's an absolute prohibition against that. And and one of the things. That you need to know about this as well is, is that there's, there's at least one instance when a man is required under the law to issue a get to the woman. And that is if the woman commits adultery in a public way because it's wanton disregard for the marriage contract. And that's the reason that it has to go that way. So I want you to understand the process. The process is you get a civil divorce and then you do the get process, and now the marriage is dissolved, quote, under God. So, okay, so then when Jesus speaks on this, he's not speaking into a vacuum. He's actually speaking into a very active and important debate within Judaism between the two main rabbinic schools of his day, and that would be Beit Hillel, so the, the house of Hillel versus the house of Shammai. Beit Shammai. So those two are, form a lot of the really important rabbinic debates of Jesus' day. So much of what people ask him and many issues on which he weighs in are partly in response to the debate between those two schools. And he doesn't unilaterally come down on one side or the other. In fact, there are many times, including here even, when Jesus is not going to take that, either one of those, he's going to lean more heavily towards one, and particularly here in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to lean more towards the the more sort of conservative side as opposed to the more lenient side. And conservative in, in in the language that I'm trying to use here, it means he's conserving more he's preserving the marriage more rather than allowing a lenient grounds for divorce and, and so it's it's important that we understand that that when he's speaking on these things the, these, these are topics under debate at, at the highest levels at the time of of Jesus and so the the uh, what's given in Deuteronomy 24 it has a lot to do with this issue, the first four verses. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs from his house. And then, and then it goes on to to talk about um, remarriage and things like that and, and divorce after remarriage and all that kind of stuff. But, but that idea of he, is, he finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Okay, so that requires rabbinic interpretation. What is this indecency? What does it mean? So we, we're, we're going to get the two opposing sides here. So Beit Hillel, the house of Hillel, interpreted the phrase to mean indecency and, quote, any matter. So that's a new kind of divorce. In fact, they, they ruled that anything the husband found displeasing was grounds for divorce, including if she's a bad cook. I mean, it, this could be a very broad, broad interpretation of what indecency means. If So he doesn't find favor because of, he, she doesn't find favor in his eyes because of in, an, an indecency. And so the house of Hillel, Hillel was a famous rabbi. So the house of Hillel determines indecency to be pretty much anything. It's, it's not quite no fault, but it, it certainly expands the definition of fault to, to a level that, that we almost couldn't even imagine today. It, it, but, but what does that say, then? It says at some level that it takes marriage— less seriously when you can divorce for any kind of reason like that if you're a bad cook if you make a bad meal even it didn't even have to be a general thing it could be um something that was that was even just very specific that that he she would do things that displease him and those could be defined as indecency under the law and so then the the opposing side of that would be Beit Shammai so the house of Shammai who was a who was another rabbi interpreted it at, and restricted it to sexual misconduct and specifically adultery. So Jesus is going to fall more closely on the side of Shammai here. And it's the important thing to, that, that underlies the whole thing is it's a covenant. Marriage is a covenant relationship. And in the case of, of Second Temple Judaism, marriage was a covenant that had a written contract that went along with it. And so to dissolve a covenant requires gross misconduct. And that's, that's Shammai's way of looking at it. And it means also that Jesus is evaluating it in the same way, because you're breaking a covenant. And so, so as far as Jesus' uh, teaching is concerned, that, that, that better be extraordinary. That, that should be an extraordinary event, not an ordinary event. And so it's, it's going to have to do with sin of breaking the contract is the way Jesus interprets this thing. But ultimately, what he's going to tell us in, in Matthew 19 and then also the other synoptic gospels, Mark and Luke, are also going to include this same teaching where he's going to talk about this, this breaking of the marriage vow and what the ideal is. And the ideal is very simple. It goes back to Genesis where the two become one flesh. A man leaves his mother and father and cleaves to his wife. So that's the, and what God has ordained, let no man put asunder, is the words that we use. Uh, And that's the way we need to to understand Jesus' teaching here when he says this. Um, There's multiple reasons that that it's important that this process be followed, it's largely to protect the woman financially. But then Jesus raises it to a different level in the way that he teaches it here in the Sermon on the Mount. I, I want to sort of give you a heads up on what was that? What were the the sort of general agreement among uh, Jewish rabbis at the at the time? It, it could include things like infertility. That that's good enough grounds, and and the reason for that. It is that the first commandment given into a marriage is to procreate. And so if one of those spouses is infertile, then that, that can become grounds for divorce. We see that in—you don't have to divorce. It, it, polygamy was not outlawed in the Torah, believe it or not. It, it's Monogamy is upheld as, as the standard— and the preferred way of doing things, by the time of the Second Temple, polygamy is, is pretty much outlawed within Judaism. But at the time of, of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, that you, you see that she had a rival wife, Peninnah. So Elkanah was married. The, the, the understanding that most people have about it is that Elkanah was married to Hannah. And the way that, that it worked at the time was if within 10 years there was no child born, then you could take a second wife, or you could divorce the one you have. And so the reason there's a rival wife is because Hannah was infertile. So then, so that's one of the valid grounds at the time of Jesus. Unfaithfulness, material neglect, that could be food or clothing or both and emotional neglect so those were all recognized as valid grounds for divorce but jesus however says no only in 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 when it's when we're talking about sexual immorality when we're talking about adultery that's the only way and then what does he say beyond that then then he is essentially saying that you're forcing this woman to sin if you divorce her on any other grounds than sexual immorality wait how does he make her commit adultery well, he makes her commit adultery because he's putting her into a, in an extremely vulnerable position as a divorced single woman. She's financially vulnerable. She's otherwise vulnerable, and so what he's saying is is that this woman needs a husband, and that it's very cultural that this woman needs a husband because that women don't work in the workplace, so she can do certain things to make some income for the household. But but it's a secondary thing. Not not it's not the primary source of income, and so. He says that it forces her, makes her commit adultery, because she has to have a man. The, the, that's the, the the reality is, is that she needs for financial support, strength, and otherwise. Then, then she's got to commit adultery because she's marrying somebody, and he doesn't consider that divorce to be quote valid. So, is, is she um, innocent then of that se- of that sexual? immorality that that adultery yes because this man has forced her to do so and then it says whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery so so it's that remarriage thing is an important thing and so what is it that jesus is saying here and that is is that sexual immorality is incredibly important it's a huge issue because even if uh, somebody who marries a divorced woman commits adultery it's it's all about that one issue, it, and we tend to treat it as though it was something light. And, and we what we say is is that we believe, you know, that that adultery is certainly biblical grounds for divorce. Jesus lays that out really simply here. But is it required? Do you have to divorce an adulterous woman? And, and the, certainly the Book of Hosea would tend to point in the other, other direction. But Hosea did it at God's specific command. Now in the New Testament, in our lives, that's totally different in my mind, that, that you're not required to divorce a woman because of sexual immorality. But but it would be true that you would be required to divorce a woman who f- refuses to repent of. In other words, she continues to do sexual immoral things. So th- that precludes certain kinds of marriages that uh, that you can't have an open marriage, for instance, and consider that to be anything other than an adulterous situation where, where divorce should happen, is if, if the woman refuses to repent of that sexual immorality. So Jesus raises the bar and tightens everything up. But why? He's protecting marriage. Again, it's a fence. It, it's, we, as we talked about yesterday, there, he's, he's drawing a fence around marriage by limiting divorce to places where only sexual immorality is at play and it's important that we understand that and it's also important that we understand the last word from god on on this issue about divorce actually is is in prior to the new testament i mean it is actually found in malachi the last prophetic book of the old testament and and malachi um God says, um, the second thing you do, the first one is, is being faithless to one another and profaning the covenant, um, it, it, because it's, it's, it's gone in after another God. So, so two of them. And then the second thing he says you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it from the favor, with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, that's speaking of the covenant between man and woman, to whom you have been faithless, although she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring." So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of your you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and don't be faithless. So God is accusing them in two different ways of being faithless. They've been faithless to one another, they've been faithless to God, and then they were faithless to their wives. So the, the basic uh complaint God's making is you're not faithful in any of the covenants that you've made. And and for that, God no longer accepts or regards the offering. He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Where does that idea come up, where God regar- no longer regards the offering? That goes back to Cain and Abel. God had no regard for Cain's offering, so it's an important matter. This faithfulness to one another, God considers it very important. Jesus considers it very important that that it is on par with faithlessness to God. One is a sign of the other. If you're going to be faithful and faithless in this, you're you're un, you're unfaithful here as well. And so, when Jesus speaks about divorce, he narrows it, builds a really tight fence around marriage by limiting divorce to only sexual immorality. It, it, it's, it's a different ethic from either, the, either of the two rabbinic houses because it's tighter than and it's binding on us in a way those two rabbinic arguments are not even binding on Jews because you can pick and choose which one you would prefer. That's the beauty of Jesus doing these things is we have an authoritative answer on what's permissible. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.